Bibles, if you would please, and open them to Matthew chapter 6. Today we are continuing our journey through the Gospel of Matthew, and you can see by the number on your outline that we are on our 60th lesson in this Gospel of the Kingdom. Uh, So far we've only progressed to the ending of the uh, sixth chapter, and so that tells you we're going to be occupied with the Gospel of Matthew for quite some time. And that's not a problem for us because as we go through this verse-by-verse study, we look at, we will look at every major theme of the Bible. We'll also look at some of the minor themes. We'll see great theological sections as also uh, some very good practical sections that touch our everyday lives. And such is the case with the Sermon on the Mount. This is a very unique sermon because the things that Jesus said in this sermon, the rest of the New Testament written by the apostles bears out and and further uh, uh, explains things that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, we are in a very practical part of the sermon right now, and this is something that touches everyone in the room today. There are things that affect your spiritual life, and we need to be concerned about those things. How are we to relate to God? How are we to pray? How should we live a life that's devoted to Christ? And those are issues that are addressed in this sermon, but it goes beyond that. Because if you were to spend all of your time uh, thinking about lofty spiritual matters, and you spend all of your time reading the Bible, all your time praying, uh, you would do what some people have done. They've given up on the world, and they've locked themselves away in monasteries. Some have gone to live in a cabin in the woods somewhere. And so thus, they have become no spiritual good for the world that is around them. I want to remind you of what Jesus says in chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. He said that his people are the salt of the earth and they are the light of the world. And we can neither be salt nor light if we hide ourselves away and we refuse to be identified with the mundane things of life. So if we're not to hide ourselves away, then it means we're going to have to face life's issues. We have to deal with everyday affairs. And as we do, we must relate to this life in a godly way so that we satisfy all of life's requirements while at the same time we maintain our spiritual relationship with God. Now, sometimes that is a very difficult thing for Christians to do. Uh, Christians sometimes lose the battle. They lose the focus. And so they become neither good for the spiritual world and they are no good for the physical world either. And one of the things that, or maybe I should say the chief thing that so often causes us to lose that focus, get our minds off of God, is our material goods. We become so preoccupied with how we're going to live, what we're going to wear, uh, what we're going to eat, and so we become consumed with worry. And it's Jesus' intention in this particular part of the Sermon on the Mount that we would not be worry wards. Uh, God is sovereign. God has a plan. God has his people. God has his priorities. He's made believers a part of his plan. And in order to carry that out, he must take care of us. And he promised that he would take care of us. So what we have to do is relax a little, uh, release the tension of trying to do God's job. It's God's job to take care of us. And we need the faith to believe that he will. And this is essentially what Jesus is teaching in this section. He says, don't worry because God will take care of you. Now we're going to look today at the masterful way that Jesus explains this. So stand with me please as we look in the scriptures. Matthew chapter 6 verse number 25 down through the end of the chapter. Jesus says, Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life 
what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than meat, and the body than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit unto his stature? And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you, that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothe the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Heavenly Father, as we look into this text today, as we look at your holy word, Lord, open up our hearts, help us to understand what Jesus says here. We thank you, Lord, that you are a God who controls all things. We can cast everything upon you. We need not worry. And help us, Lord, to understand that every day so that we don't lose the focus of who you are. Bless in this message today. Speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Verse number 25 of our text begins, Therefore I say unto you, take no thought. Now, as usual, when you have a scripture that begins with therefore, it means that there is a statement that's been made, and then there's a conclusion that will be drawn. And in this case, the therefore refers back to verse number 24, where Jesus is teaching about serving two masters. If God is your master instead of money and your material possessions, and you have surrendered yourself to the one who owns and controls all things, if you're letting God control your life instead of your money then there is no reason for you to worry about your life. Now, the connection also goes back to verse number 22, when Jesus says, If thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. In other words, he's saying, if your focus is right, and if you keep your eyes on what God is doing in the world instead of what you're doing in the world, and you're not tossed to and fro by looking at too many things at one time, then there is no reason for you to worry. God has everything handled. Now, we'll notice in these scriptures that Jesus gives examples from nature that teach us why we shouldn't worry. Jesus was a great illustrator. Uh, He doesn't make blanket statements and tell you to just accept things at face value. Uh, He presents valid arguments as he does in this text. It should be enough that what we would do, we would listen to God. And when God says, don't do this, just simply by the fact that God said it, we wouldn't do it. The command not to be enough because God is God. But have you noticed that throughout the scripture that when God gives a command, he knows our propensity to ask questions. We always want to know why. And God has given us a mind that mirrors his own. We have a mind of reason and of sanity. And so God knows that we're always going to ask questions when we're told to do something. God knows that's a part of the human psyche, and so he does give us reasons. 
I think back to what God said in the Old Testament when he told the Israelites to drive out all of the people that were in the land of Canaan. God said, destroy them all. He said, don't let any of them live in the land. Now, he could have given Moses and Joshua a very direct, simple command and said, just simply, you go in there and you take possession of the land, you drive all the people out, and just left it at that. But we see that God gave reasons. He said, if you go into the land and you don't drive out the people, then you will marry their daughters, you will begin to take on their customs, and then you will start serving their gods. And so God gave reasons for what he commands. And Jesus follows the pattern. He's God. And so he gives us illustrations to help us to understand this. He says, there are birds that don't worry. There are flowers in the field that don't worry. And since you are better than those, and you have a personal relationship with God that they don't have, then you ought not to worry. There are three times in this text that Jesus says, therefore. Verse number 25, he says, therefore I say unto you. Verse 31, therefore take no thought. Verse 34, take therefore no thought. And so he repeats. And whenever you see God repeating things, you had better pay attention to what God says. One time is enough. God says it one time, that ought to be enough. But when God says it three times, then you had better get this right. You have no excuse not to get this right. Now, if you go against what God says three times, then what would you think that that is? I would say it's sin, wouldn't you? If God says three times, don't do this, and you do it, there's no question that what he's speaking about is sin. Now, why does God tell us three times? Two reasons. One is that God wants to be emphatic about this. And number two, he knows how thick-headed we are. He knows that we're slow to get the point sometimes, and so we just don't want to misunderstand the point here. So we have to get that therefore taken care of before we proceed to the key argument, or, or the key to the arguments, I should say, is what's gone on before here. The key to this is that God is the one who alters our thinking and our relationship with the world. Now, the second part of this, before we get into the uh, text itself, is this phrase, take no thought. And I hope that you've already deduced what that means. I've already interpreted this to mean don't worry. At the time that the King James Bible uh, was translated, this was the common way of saying worry. Take no thought meant don't have anxiety. Don't let this bother you. Don't give this undue consideration. In other words, don't worry. So let's begin then with the exposition of the text. It's going to take us three weeks to get through this. And the first observation I want to make about what Jesus says is the preparation of life. Now, sometimes to understand a text, we have to get to what the text does not mean before we can see what it does mean. Does this text teach that we don't have to make any preparation? Jesus says, take no thought. Don't worry about things. So does that mean uh, making house payments and car payments and buying groceries is inconsequential? Does he say, well, don't think about those things? Well, if that's the meaning, then we'd have to uh, change our interpretation of some other scripture. We're going to have trouble with this because if you came to me and you said, Pastor Smith, I, 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 I'm having some financial difficulties. I've been reading the Bible and God says that he will take care of me. And Jesus said, take no thought for these things. So I quit my job six months ago. Now I don't have any food to eat. I don't have any way to buy groceries. Well, would you really think that God is telling you here that you don't have to work? 
Is he saying you don't have to think about these things and not think about how you're going to make mortgage payments, how you will put food on the table, and how you'll buy shoes for your kids? No, he's not saying that. You have to go to work. You have to make the preparation. Solomon wrote about this a thousand years before Christ, and he said, Go to the ant, thou sluggard, consider her ways, and be wise, which having no guide, overseer, or ruler, provideth her meat in the summer, and gathereth her food in the harvest. Solomon says that an ant has a lot more sense than many people. An ant knows that he's going to starve to death if he doesn't make some preparation. Now, in our text here, it's the birds. Birds don't get anxious about things. Birds don't worry. They go about looking for worms, and they build their nest, and they protect their young. But who puts the worms into the ground? God puts it there. God provides the materials for the nest. But God doesn't come along and drop worms into a bird's mouth, and he doesn't have angels build nests in the trees for the birds to live in. The bird is industrious, and he knows he has to take care of those things. And we think about this, if Solomon could just see our society today, he'd really wonder what has happened. I mean, the apostles would wonder what has become of their teachings, and they'd scratch their heads. The apostle Paul said this in 1 Timothy. He said, but if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. 2 Corinthians 12, 14, he wrote, Behold, the third time I'm ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you, for I seek not yours, but you. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. And that's about preparedness. That's industriousness. God expects us to work. And yet, we look at our society today, and we built a welfare state. I'm not against welfare for those who are truly needy, but I definitely believe, just like the Bible says, that able-bodied people ought to work. It's your responsibility to provide for your family. And so if you can work, then you ought not to lay back and collect a check from the government. Jesus does not teach here that if you don't take care of yourself, then somebody else will do it for you. Now, in his day, there were multitudes of beggars that had no social outlet. There, there were no government programs, and so if you didn't work, you didn't eat. Now, again, I, I know that there are those that are truly helpless, and, and I think it's good for us to help others who do need the help. In fact, if you go back into the Old Testament, you'll find there that God built into his system of the kingdom, he built into his plan and purpose for his people a system whereby the needy would be helped. And so God told his people, you need to be compassionate about the poor. You need to help them. Leviticus is a book of laws that God gave to his people. And one of the laws that God gave there, he says, And when ye reap the harvest of your land, thou shalt not make clean riddance of the corners of thy field when thou reapest, neither shalt thou gather any gleaning of the harvest. Thou shalt leave them unto the poor and to the stranger. I am the Lord your God. And so God told the people, he said, when you, harvest, when you harvest your crops, don't cut the whole thing down evenly. Don't go all the way to the corners of the field. Leave some of the wheat standing. And he said, when you drop some of the wheat as you're gathering it into the bundles, don't pick up the pieces that you drop. Leave those there for the poor. Leave those for the stranger who has no field and he has no food for his family. That was God's system of helping the poor. And so the poor would go out into the fields after the harvest and they would pick up what was left there in order to feed their families. So the Israelites were not to be so selfish that they kept all of the harvest for themselves. 
But do you notice here that God does not say, pick up the leftovers, bundle them into bundles, and then take them to the poor. No, the poor man had to go out to work also. He had to go into the field and put in the effort. Now, I think that we see something here that fits our text. And that is that God never speaks to a farmer or uh, complains or says that a farmer shouldn't plow his ground or plant his crops. He says, you must be industrious. You must work for what you receive. And so you don't sit back and expect that God will drop food into your mouth and food will be delivered to your door each day. And then secondly, we also see from that that if you don't have a field, then you can expect that somehow, some way, there's provision out there waiting for you. And you don't need to worry about it. God has a way to feed you. So you keep looking, you keep searching, you keep busy, you stay faithful. And God says, you'll not starve to death. God will provide for you. I know that some of you have lost your jobs. It's a tough economy and the employment keeps rising. And what may not happen to you is that you're kept in a comfortable lifestyle that you've enjoyed in this past economic boom. And you may have to shut off your cable TV. And you may not be able to afford to have someone mow your grass for you. And you may not have unlimited long distance and unlimited texting and favorite five and rollover minutes and super deluxe cell phone plans. You might have to downsize and drive an 89 Ford instead of a 2010 Lincoln. But God is going to put food in your mouth. He'll put a roof over your head. He'll put clothes on your back. And the key to that is accepting the way that God thinks that you should be sustained instead of the way that you think that you should be sustained. So no, Jesus is not speaking here being unprepared. He doesn't say it's okay for you to lay on the couch in your dirty bathrobe with your beer belly and watch Oprah every afternoon. Uh, but he's saying is that you, have, you should not be preoccupied with this. Don't be preoccupied with the food and the clothing, the shelter, and focus only on those things. Alexander McLaren, who was a contemporary of Spurgeon, said, Foresight and foreboding are two very different things. Foresight and foreboding are two very different things. So you can think about this. You, you can be prepared to survive. You ought to be. But you ought not to be so worried about it that it consumes your thinking every day and you become debilitated by it. So preparation is okay. The Bible doesn't teach against it. Now, secondly, we can observe from this text the composition of life. Look at verse number 25 again. He says, Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body what ye shall put on. Is the life not more than meat and the body than raiment? This text is full of carefully crafted arguments and skillful reasoning. You remember when we were going through the Lord's Prayer, I said that most people recite the Lord's Prayer mindlessly. And they don't even know what the particular statements made actually mean. And I wonder how many times have we looked over this text, we just skim over it without really exploring what is said here. Jesus uses a logical argument called arguing from the lesser to the greater. And it basically unfolds like this. If God is so careful for the lesser, won't he much more care for the greater? Now we'll see this as we go on, that he says, if God does this for the birds, which are the lesser, won't he do it for you, which is the greater? And if he does it for the lilies that are the lesser, won't he do it for you, that is the greater? 
Now the first instance of this type of argument is in verse number 25. And he says, should you worry about what you eat, the lesser, and what you wear, the lesser, when life itself is the greater? Should you worry about the body, uh, should you worry when the body itself is greater, when that's a much higher consideration for God? And so Jesus demonstrates both. Life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. And he does this in separate examples. But before we look more closely at that, I want to show you another demonstration, the very same principle, the same type of argument that was given by the Apostle Paul. If you would take your Bible, turn over to Romans chapter 8, and we're going to look at this. This this is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. And you know it well. Uh, We have read part of this so many times that it ought to be tattooed on your in your brain but I want you to look at Romans 8 verse number 28 and verses following and we look at Paul's argument here and we're going to superimpose this upon the text that we find in Matthew 6 Romans 8 verse 28 and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. What What then, or what shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Now this is one of the most comforting, greatest passages that we find in Scripture. The scope of God's plan from eternity past to eternity future is unfolded in these Scriptures. Now Paul says that we have been called out according to God's purpose. And since we belong to him and we are in his plan and purpose, then God will work everything out somehow in our lives for good. And we may not understand how at the moment how that's going to figure in. There might be something you're going through right now and you can't figure out how will this ever work out for my good. But God uses that to refine you and to edify you and eventually it all brings glory to him. Then he goes on and he speaks about God for knowing us. That means that God loved us beforehand. It means that God has chosen us beforehand. Then he speaks about God predestinating, predestinating the course of our lives so that we might be like Christ. And then he says in time that God called us out by his marvelous grace. And then he justified us through our faith in Christ. And, of course, that's speaking of salvation. And then he stretches it all the way into the future by saying that we are going on to our glorification in heaven. And then he comes to verse number 31. And he says, God has done all of this for you. He's the great God of the universe. He possesses all power. And so if God is on your side, who can be against you? Or we might phrase it another way. If God is on your side, what does it matter who's against you? And then... He comes to this lesser to greater argument. Now, it's the same logic of Matthew chapter 6, only Paul is stating it in reverse. And he says, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Paul says, God has given you his greatest gift. He sent his own son into the world to redeem you and to die for you. He gave the greatest that heaven could offer. And if he gave the greatest, then what lesser thing would God ever withhold from you? 
Now you see the argument he's making? Uh, if you get all of these outstanding benefits from God, even Christ himself, then what little nitpicky thing is God going to say, well, that's just too much for me. I can't afford that. I can't give you that. But wait, what does Paul say? He's already given you the exalted Christ. He's already given you the polished diamond of heaven. And so now is God going to wince at a bubblegum ring? That's the argument. Now we take that back to Matthew and we put this on top of what Jesus says in verse number 25. He says, Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body, what ye shall put on, is not the life more than meat and the body than raiment. So he's asking a question. What is the composition of your life? Is your life just food? Is your life just clothing? Is it just shelter? Where did you get your life? You're so worried about the peripheral things. Just stop for a moment to consider life itself. Where did you get your life? Did you give life to yourself? No, you depend upon God for life. And so if you depend upon him for life then why don't you depend upon him for the much much lesser, that which sustains your life? The psalmist says in Psalm 100, verse 3, Know ye that the Lord, he is God. It is he that hath made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people, and the sheep of his pasture. The logic that we have here is simply astounding. This is so simple and yet so profound. God has made you. God has given you life. You are the sheep of his pasture. You are the birds in the air. You are his lilies of the field. God made you and God gave you life. He gave you a heart that pumps the blood. He gave you your arms and your hands and your legs and your feet. God gave you a brain. He gave you a nervous system that controls it all. Life is an astounding thing. You know, I have no patience for the evolutionary scientists who believe that life is the product of random chemicals that came together. I have no patient for, patience for those who believe that a fish sprouted legs and then three eons of times he crawled out of the ocean and then became this complex organism that's called man. Humans that now have power of reason or maybe would say powers of idiocy because now our powers of reason have convinced us that we came from an ape. You know, it's amazing that God tolerates all of that, even takes time to develop these kinds of arguments. Here we are, stupid humans. We can't understand what God does and why he does it, and yet God takes time to try to explain it to us. It's amazing that God does it. It's a testament to God's mercy, love, and grace that he would allow me even to stand here today to talk to you about these kinds of questions. You know, the other day I saw a great little symbol on the back of a car. Uh, Most of you know that Christians will put the little fish on the back of the car and that's the ancient symbol of Christianity. Well, the people who don't like that fish created their own fish and it's that little one that has the legs on it. You've seen those and they put it on the back of their cars and on the inside it says Darwin. Well, I saw a a great one the other day because they had two of these fish. They had the little Darwin fish on there and then they had a bigger fish that came along and swallowed up the Darwin fish. And you know, that's the way it's going to be. One day God's going to gobble up all these little Darwinists and he's going to expose their ignorance and their defiance and he'll do it for all eternity in the fires of hell. There is no excuse because the Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God. Well, back to the argument. That's just an aside. You are alive and that is a testament to God's power. He gave you the gift of life 
And so now do you think that God is going to abandon you and, and see how that you would survive without him? Does it make sense that God would create you, that he would give you life, and then he would let your life wither away? Now you put Paul's argument on top of that. God has his common grace, that's for all of humanity, but Paul's argument is centered here in God's elect people. We're not talking about common grace now, we're talking about special redeeming grace. And I want to make you aware that my next statements are for believers in Jesus Christ. There's no promise, there is no hope here for anyone who doesn't trust Christ as Savior. Do you think that God would give you life That he would put you into his plan and his purpose from eternity past. That he would send you his only begotten son from the glories of heaven. That he would allow him to be beaten beyond recognition. That he would allow him to be spat upon, to be hit with sticks. That long thorns would be driven down into his hands or into his brow. And that he would allow his hands and his feet to be driven through with those nails. That he would allow him to be raised up between heaven and earth on an old Roman cross. That he would suffer there the weight of hell for your sins and infinite suffering that's placed upon Christ? Do you believe that God would give him to die an agonizing death for you, send him to the grave, and then raise him again on the third day? Do you think that God would do all of that? And then God the Father says, oh well, just let them starve. I paid this astounding redemption price for them, but I don't care. I'll just let them rot. Maybe you don't have more sins than that, but God does. And when you doubt God, and when you pout, and you worry, and you wring your hands wondering what you will do, and you spend all of your time focusing on chicken wings and Levi jeans and Michael Jordan gym shoes, that is next to blasphemy for a child of God. Jesus says, what is the composition of your life? Isn't it more than all of this stuff? Isn't it more than food and clothing. You see the argument there? He doesn't just say it. That ought to be enough. He illustrates it. And he drives the point home. And he says it three times. Therefore, take no thought. Therefore, don't be anxious. Therefore, don't worry. And friend, if you're a child of God, you ought never to take your focus off of God, who is the one who made your body and gave you life. Now, what we've done today is just get a start into this passage. This is sound practical teaching. And if you get this down into your soul, friends, it will change your life. It gives you a different outlook on your life. So I want to close with this today. Some people say that, well, what you need to do on a Sunday morning is that you always need to preach an evangelistic message. And I would ask you, has this message been evangelistic? I mean, could a lost sinner not see eternal things are more important than temporal things? Can a lost person not see that God giving his only son to die on the cross to pay for our sins is something that we have to very closely look at and consider? Can you not see that Paul said God did not spare his son, that God gave his greatest gift to redeem us from our sins? And then if you believe that promise, that God will save you, and then your life becomes God's to order and to sustain. Every message ought to have Christ in it. And folks, this message has Christ stamped all over it. Christ's work is written all over what we've read today. None of it makes sense. None of it makes any sense at all if God did not do the greater. And that's giving his only begotten son so that you could understand the lesser. God will 
take care of you. To God be the glory, great things he has done. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we look into this truth of your word and we see what you've done for us. Jesus coming to the world to die for our sins. Salvation that you've given us through the sacrifice of Christ upon the cross. How meaningful that is. What a price that's been paid for our redemption that you would send your own son to pay for our sins. And Lord, help us to recognize the argument that's made here. God gives us life. God saves our souls. You've done this for us. Jesus has come into our hearts. And now why would we think that you would ever abandon us? What is there for us to worry about? Help us to keep our eyes focused on you. Lord, I pray for anyone here today who may not know you as Savior. These things are foreign to them. It It makes no sense. It is no guarantee. There is no promise here for anyone who has not trusted Christ personally. These are the ones that you take care of with your special redeeming grace that you work in our lives and you promise to uphold us and to sustain us. And then I pray for Christians that are worried about things. The cares of this life are weighing them down. They become no use to your service. Their testimony is ruined. I pray, Lord, that you would lift us up. Help us to see that you do care. You will take care of us. All that we need do is place all of those cares upon you. Lord, speak to someone's heart today as we sing at this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.